2: If you've never listened to our show before, I do encourage you to start with uh, the first episode of Season 1, um, as the show does have an overarching story, but if you just want to jump in, this is the perfect place to start. I'm super excited for this season, I think you guys will like it a lot, and a quick reminder, if you're a fan of this show and you love what we do, you can get ad-free and bonus content at midnightdisease.net slash join. But without further ado, Season 2. Season <music> 2. Thank mm-hmm. you.
3: Looking back, I wonder how many times my mind has saved me by refusing to fully comprehend what I've seen. If I were to stop and really think about the multiple dimensions and timelines, the astronomical numbers and principles of infinity that I deal with every day, I think I'd go mad. How would you reconcile a limited, imperfect thing like my primate brain with the idea of dimensional travel? Perhaps the project had other people in my position who didn't have that knack of dumbing it all down to a day job, and they did go mad. Maybe there's something too mundane about me to go crazy. Strange that being just boring enough is what got me in this position, but I'll take it. I should explain a little more. Director Beckman knows all of this, but it might be one of the project board who reviews these archives, and I... I doubt they'll know who I am. My name is Andrew Moss. I am the data archivist for the Extant team. I was brought into the Exclusion Area Research Project out of university and gradually broken in to the truth about what we do, as I suspect we all were. I was good with information and administering it, and I had a basic knowledge of history which was relevant, so here I am. Recording these after action reports so there will always be a record of what the team finds. EXTANT is one of those interesting sounding acronyms. It stands for Existential Threat Analysis of Non Standard Timelines. It consists of a support staff, including myself, mission planning, communications, technical analysis, equipment and medical, and the field team. It's the team who actually visit the target timelines and gather evidence. Their mission data is collected and analysed and I write up the finished report, which goes to Director Beckman and the project board. I'm getting all this down in case something happens. No one knows for sure what the result of our visits to other timelines will be, Especially if and when we start changing things. If the extant team were to be lost somehow, maybe if our home timeline collapses or some similar catastrophe, there will be a record of what we found. It's not nice to think about, but we can't pretend it isn't a risk. The first mission I've archived in this way was one to a timeline that exhibited the traits the extant team looks for. It was a nearby timeline, so there was an Earth and a Milky Way and gravity and so on, but there was no communications traffic around Earth. A lack of street lighting and other activity seen from orbit. The probes returned a negative on all of it, along with the sort of radiological readings that suggested something had gone very wrong down there indeed. And things going wrong is what the Extant team is interested in. The field team was led by Sergeant Garnet Brand, with Private First Class Francisco Quintero, Private Richard Sandich, and Warrant Officer Simon Poulter. All these were drawn from the United States Army, as is common with project field teams, with Warrant Officer Poulter being the team's technical and drone recon specialist. They use the environmentally sealed transfer capsule for the dimensional breach. I've seen inside one of those things, and I don't envy them. It was designed as an emergency escape vehicle for the International Space Station, and it's about the size of a phone booth. The computers are getting more accurate with where the breach comes out. The capsule emerged about 40 meters up, and the crash bags inflated successfully so the landing wasn't too bad. After confirming the local radiation and atmospheric data, the team exited and ascertained they were just south of Fredericksburg, Virginia, in the USA. This was a little over 50 miles from the target of the outskirts of Washington, D.C., which is a standard starting point for investigation of post-nuclear worlds. The first few minutes must be a combination of thrilling and terrifying. They have no idea what they'll see when they open the capsule for the first time. Everything reduced to ash or bodies everywhere. Hostile inhabitants, maybe. In this case, they found a half-leveled Fredericksburg, still pumping out the residual radiation from a nuclear explosion about 18 months previously. By that time, the half-life of the various isotopes means it's not going to boil your organs, but the team still carried their MBC gear, just in case. They've seen ruined cities before, of course. Even before the project tapped them up, they had all served in combat zones and were familiar with what human ingenuity can do to a city block or three. Even so, there can't be an easy thing to see. The place was evacuated and the bodies seemed to have been removed, though the team didn't look too closely. The weather was overcast and raining. Being uncertain of the date, it was impossible to tell if the weather was unseasonable enough to confirm a nuclear winter. The team later commented on the vividness of the sunset, which suggested a large amount of dust and debris in the atmosphere. The team's next task was to secure transport. Fuel and motor oil have a shelf life, so a car isn't a good option if you don't know how long it's been there. For that reason, they looked for bicycles. They stay usable a lot longer once abandoned, and they can be repaired on the go. Within two hours, the team had located four bicycles and made their initial observations. Until the bombs fell, the area showed no significant differences from the world they came from. America was still America, school buses were still yellow. The last date they found from newspapers and store calendars was October the 25th, 1975. The technology and styles mashed up, although Private Sandish said Virginia looked like it was stuck in the 70s anyway. There were... no... people. Residual radiation suggested the region had been both hit directly and caught in a plume of fallout. Everyone had either fled or died, and nobody had come back afterwards. Power and running water had failed too. The team headed north towards Washington, D.C. They'd already discovered the first sign of a divergence from the more common nuclear war scenarios, namely the date. Several of the post-nuclear timelines the project has documented fall into non-Arkipov or non-Petrov categories. Commodore Vasily Arkhipov was an officer in the Soviet submarine B-59 during the Cuban missile crisis. Cut off from communication with Moscow, the submarine's captain wanted to launch a nuclear torpedo against the American vessels pursuing it. Arkhipov's agreement was required to launch the nuke, and he refused, averting a probable nuclear exchange. Stanislav Petrov, meanwhile, was a Soviet Air Force lieutenant colonel in charge of an early warning system to detect American nuclear missile launches. When the system told him a total of five missiles were headed for Moscow, Petrov decided not to do as he'd been instructed, which was to pass the alert up the chain of command to trigger a massive retaliation against America. Instead, he reasoned that five missiles wasn't enough for a realistic American attack and that the system had given a false alarm. It turned out he was right. Petrov and Arkhipov are two of the very few people who can be reasonably said to have saved the world. Certainly... Multiple war-ravaged timelines can be traced back to one of them not being present or making a different choice. A nuclear exchange in 1975 didn't match up with either of these scenarios. The Cuban Missile Crisis was in 1962, and Petrov's False Alarm was in 1983. This world had been devastated somewhere in between. As PFC Quintero suggested as the fire team made their way north, that made
4: things a bit more... interesting... This is Private First Class, Francisco Quintero. Uh, uh, do I have to say that every time? I've already done this, like, a hundred times. Uh, uh, okay. Okay, sure. The first piece of real intel we got was on the way out of Fredericksburg. Kind of funny. Us four tough guys riding around on bicycles, but it beats walking, you know? Well, three tough guys in Poulter, I guess. Anyhow, it was a recruitment station. You know, a career in the armed forces. Be all you can be. Kind of ironic, it was on the side of town that avoided the blast. Anyhow, this one had a big banner still along the front. Red, white, and blue. It said, appeasement is betrayal. We took a look around. We found a box of pamphlets. Hundreds of them. It looks like they were handing them out to everyone who came in place was abandoned but they had gone in a hurry same as everywhere else so all this stuff was still lying around we bagged a couple for evidence we stopped about two hours in the roads to the west were all full of cars don't know if the people had got out and walked or if they were caught in the flash and radiation we saw craters too way off in the distance virginia is pretty i guess but it wasn't pretty no more In nuclear timelines, we see two versions of the attack. One that takes out the big cities so the rest of the country surrenders, and one to render the whole target country uninhabitable. This was the second kind. The Reds sent multiple smaller warheads down. It must have been like burning rain. All these mushroom clouds popping up on the horizon. Then a year or so of fallout and everyone dying. I'm glad we missed end day by as much as we did. Otherwise, we'd have been in full seaburn gear all the way. Try riding a bicycle in that. We set up camp to eat. I read the pamphlet. It was a speech with a big photo of Nixon. Let me tell you, some of the language they use, my folks would have found real familiar. "'They told my mom stories about the riots in the 40s in L.A. "'They heard you speaking Spanish, they'd beat your ass for the practice. "'A lot of that purity and way-of-life talk, real Americans, that kind of thing. "'It was the same thing I read there. "'Then I looked at Nixon looking at me all angry from the page, "'and I thought, didn't that guy get bounced in 74?'
3: "'The team's suspicions were confirmed "'as they approached the southern outskirts of Washington, D.C. "'It was clear the city had been heavily hit "'and much of the central portion was devastated, "'with the outer regions in various stages of ruination. The "'One structure that survived was a billboard "'with an image of President Nixon "'alongside idealised versions of personnel "'from each of the armed forces, "'and the slogan, "'Stand Together Against the Reds.' "'Going by the photographs taken by the team,' The portrait of Nixon is very flattering. The newspaper pages recovered by the team in Fredericksburg also confirmed that in this timeline, Richard Nixon was president in 1975. In the timeline we know, Nixon resigned in 1974 rather than face impeachment after the Watergate scandal. Gerald Ford succeeded him and worked at easing tensions with the Soviet Union during his short time in office. Going by what the team saw, that didn't happen in this timeline there was little that could be gained from Washington DC. As tends to be the case, it was a major target for the Soviet missiles. It would take a much more substantial mission with full CNBC capabilities and construction and demolitions equipment to get any intelligence that still remained in the bunkers and safe rooms beneath the city. The team wasn't expected to rifle through the desk in the Oval Office just to confirm that human civilization had ended by nuclear war. They collected more air and soil samples, Warren officer Poulter deployed a drone that took hundreds of photographs of a charred ruin where about three-quarters of a million people should have been. The roads out of the city were clear but became choked with cars further west, suggesting the scale of the evacuation and the fact it wasn't completely successful. The field team never brings back many hard facts, but usually enough to make an educated guess and... The picture of the warheads screaming down while thousands of cars clogged the highways was clear enough. The team were approaching their maximum mission time and after falling back from the city for food and rest, returned to the capsule site near Fredericksburg. Going by their voice recorders, they were a lot less talkative on the way back. They located the capsule out incident to return to our timeline. They were within 30 minutes of their targeted re-emergence time and less than 100 meters away. The accuracy is getting better. The team was quarantined and decontaminated as per standard, and debriefed while their data and artifacts were archived and copies made. Looking back at what the team found, I came back to one thing. Nixon drank. He drank especially heavily when things were stressful, mixing the alcohol with sleeping pills. Making for a rather dangerous cocktail, if you'll excuse the term it's possible that a president compromised by alcoholism and instability was a greater danger to the human race than Petrov's false alarm. Nixon was removed from office by the Watergate scandal but his staying in power over 1975 and with no mention of the affair in the newspaper samples brought back, it's likely that in the target timeline, Watergate never happened. Nixon stayed and in his increasingly boo-sodden state undid his work seeking peace with the Soviets. The paranoia of the propaganda witnessed by the team certainly suggests a man who was losing contact with reality and bringing the whole country down with him. Finally, he lost the plot completely and either pressed a button himself or so provoked the Soviet leadership that they launched a preemptive attack. Not a false alarm, not a secret superweapon, not an invasion of West Germany or Cuba. Just a combination of alcohol and poorly managed mental illness. In the wrong place... It can end the world.
1: You are an American. You believe in what America stands for. A way of life, a set of principles, an ironclad morality. And you will fight for it. That is why America needs you. We are beset by an enemy that has already invaded us. It landed on our shores decades ago, silently and with malicious intent. It infiltrated our every level of society, but it did not defeat us. We found it, and we are rooting it out. This enemy is the communism of the Soviet Union. For too long successive governments have appeased this foe, not willing to enter into war. The painful memories of past conflicts made cowards even of proud Americans, but now The depth and breadth of the enemy's invasion have been revealed. They can only be fought with the direct confrontation the Soviet agents fear. They can only be defeated in war. You are an American who will fight that war. Side by side with your brothers, you will fight for freedom, for justice, and for our way of life. A true American who knows this is not an enemy that can be appeased. He has had every opportunity to back down and cease his relentless expansionism. To leave our shores and walk the path of peace laid out for him. He has refused. He has left only one path open for us all. The path of war. In joining up with our armed forces, you will win that war. You will tell future generations of the part you played in our victory. You are an American.
0: Andrew, explain your choices
1: uh
3: well uh director beckman i i wasn't quite sure what my outlook would add uh i summarized the mission and gave my own conclusions i suppose they're not airtight i could be completely wrong for all i know the nixon presidency had nothing to do with the nuclear exchange but i think the theory holds I thought it was worth including the excerpt from Quintero's debriefing. Um, the raw data can only show so much. It's a very different thing, actually, being on the world where mankind has ended. And the speech from the pamphlet seemed relevant, too. Um, I'm not completely sure what the project wanted me to do here. I sort of made it up as I went along.
0: There's room for improvement, certainly. But I need another pair of eyes on what the Extant team finds. What we do is not an exact science. It's as much about interpretation as zeros and ones. There's a place for emotion. That includes the reactions of the men we send there. What do you think of the squad?
3: They seem... okay. Efficient. They know their stuff. Sanditch is a bit of a dicker, but then there's always one, isn't there? Seeing the world ending more than once has made them a bit detached from it all. I'd worry more about their mental state than their competence. How often do we rotate them out of the field?
0: Personnel has that in hand. Andrew... Indulge me for a moment. I have a thought exercise I'd like you to try.
3: That sounds dangerous.
0: Imagine you were in my position. You had to take this information to the board and make recommendations. What would you tell them about this timeline?
3: This one? Um... Well, it's a curiosity. Uh, We haven't logged many nuclear scenarios that aren't non-Petrov or non-Archipov. As from what we can take from it... Well, it confirms that nuclear war probably means the end of the world, but we have plenty of confirmation of that already. Nixon doesn't come out of it looking good. Um, Honestly, there isn't much we can use. Saying nuclear war is bad is hardly a revelation. And the timeline doesn't suggest anything worth subsequent investigations. We could probably reconstruct events if we dug up the White House and the Kremlin, but that would hardly be a worthwhile use of our resources. I'd say we add it to the knowledge base of nuclear scenarios and leave it be.
0: I see. The board agreed with you.
3: The board saw this?
0: This timeline wasn't too strange. As far as existential threats go... But there are plenty of timelines we've scouted which definitely tend towards the esoteric. That's why I want that other pair of eyes on Extant's findings. Some of them fall outside even our most paranoid threat assessments.
3: So it's going to be weirder than the superpowers nuking
4: each other?
0: Oh, yes. The orbital probes have already built up a backlog of candidates for investigation. I suggest you get a decent sleep. The team's being prepped as we speak.
3: Then I... suppose we're done for now?
0: We are. Best of luck, Andrew. And we'll talk again soon.
4: Uh, Thank you.
2: Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Our sound design and music is done by Dana Creaseman. Our producer is Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Quintero was Luis Bermudez. Caroline was Aaron Evans Walker. Propaganda voice was Brandon P. Jenkins. And our theme music is done by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. To support our show, consider heading to MidnightDisease.net slash join. Planning for your
3: next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.